Right, we're going to read from uh, Romans 12. Um, I don't actually have, oh, it's up there, great, uh, the Church Bible page reference uh, for those on the recording. It's page 1139. And this is the packaging around the uh, verse for the year. Um, so the uh, opening title in the Bible is Living Sacrifices. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Um, why don't you keep your Bibles open to that passage that, um, and ask your question. Just as I pray, uh, why don't you focus on verse 21, the last one there. Oh, great, there we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, why don't you keep that passage open and turn to that last verse, which I'll use as we pray this morning. Paul writes, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heavenly Father, we know that so often in our hearts, it's the overflow of our hearts that our mouth speaks, and so often 
our hearts are focused on the wrong thing and so we say the wrong thing we act in the wrong way so I pray that as we look into this passage together that the three challenges that we see within it would become real to us and the three questions we ask of each of those challenges would help us as we leave here today wanting to serve you better so please by the power of your spirit would you work in each of our hearts this morning and help us to understand this passage I pray this in Jesus name Amen Don't worry, I wasn't getting a stage fright earlier when I left just before the reading. Um, I just need to visit the little boy's room, but we're okay now. So uh, all's all right. Um, as, uh, as Neil mentioned earlier, um, we're beginning this new series. Um, it's going to be a five-week series looking at some of the one another phrases uh, in the New Testament. I believe there are 59 of them. Uh, we're not going to do a 59-week series, just a five-week series. And uh, the five weeks are going to be focusing, as Neil said earlier, on this area of our vision, uh, being people-focused. And I really hope and pray that it will help us as we um, seek to be just that. To be people focused and really to have a life that is honouring to God. In many ways as a Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you'll feel like uh, a fish swimming against the flow. Uh, Jesus is very countercultural. The challenges he puts to us, the way he wants us to live our lives if, we're, if we put our trust in him, will mean that we'll be going often in a completely different direction to the world. Different values, different ways of thinking, different behaviours. And that can be hard for us. Um, but it can also be very powerful because if we're living in a different way to the world around us and we're living for the honour of God, people will hopefully see that and they'll see something attractive in it that they'll want for themselves. And so what I'd like to do this morning, as I, as I prayed, three challenges we're going to look at in this passage and then I'm going to throw a question at each of the challenges. Sometimes challenges are quite hard because they kind of arrest us. Maybe a bit of us inside is going, oh, I don't really like that and we kind of ignore it. But asking the question helps to make the challenge that hits us really personal in our hearts. What difference is this going to make in my life um, this week? So that's where we're going to go this morning. Here's the first challenge. If you keep that passage open... The first challenge is, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and this is looking at our memory verse, we're looking at Romans 12, 10 and 11, one of the challenges that's given to each of us is to be other people-centred. You stop and think about that, that's pretty countercultural, isn't it? Not, it's not that if you're not a Christian, you're an inherently selfish person, you never do anything to love or serve other people, but so much of our life is spent thinking about, how can I better my life? How can I succeed? What do I need for my pleasure? to get through my day, a lot of our life revolves around us. Uh, I read an article this week in an American magazine, and the writer kind of wrote a line to kind of arrest the reader, slightly provocative, but he said this. Galileo, uh, he was an Italian astronomer in the 16th, 17th century, he said, Galileo was wrong. The earth revolves around you. At least this is what you think. A little bit provocative, but he's trying to make the point that so often we do feel like the world, even our little world, does revolve around us. And the illustration he wanted to give to help us understand that is he said so few of us are good at listening. There are very few people who are good at listening. It doesn't mean that if you're a good listener you're never selfish, but often good listeners are less selfish because they're more focused on other people. You know, you know the situation, don't you? Um, someone's speaking to you, but you're not really listening. We all do it all the time. Why? Because we're thinking about how we're going to respond to the, the thing that they're saying. Or they're telling us a story. We're not listening. We're work, working out, what better story have I got to tell? 
we're not very good listeners. And he wrote this in his article. This is a challenge for you, okay? You can take this home for lunchtime around the table. He said, can you speak to somebody else without using the words I, me, or my? And he has some really funny examples, which I won't read from the article. But it's not very easy. I, me, or my... But the point he makes is so often we use those pronouns because we want to express our opinions. We want to get our point across in the conversation. But it stops us listening. Well, being bad listeners is often one of the things that stops us being other-centred. But look at our passage because it challenges us head-on, verse 10, with that phrase, be devoted to one another. Do you know, this is the only place in the New Testament where that phrase comes in that way. Be devoted. And it comes with a real force. Paul's clearly very passionate when he says this. Have a look back at verse 9. Two other words that come there with the same kind of force. Hate evil. Cling to what is good. So Paul's speaking with a real energy and force because he recognises we're not very good at being other-centred. And it's almost a sort of very deliberate decision to be devoted to another person. Have a look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. It's really saying love must not be hypocritical. If you read the message, uh, translation of the Bible, it, it says here, love must not fake it. I quite like that. Love mustn't fake it. You see, how easy is it for our tokens of love to one another to be just that, to be tokens? We, we do love one another, but often it's when it's easy for us when we're in a good place it's far far harder to love each other when we're in a bad place or when the person we're called to love is not very lovable and so often our tokens of love are tokens but they're not that deep rooted and they're not consistent but here the passage be devoted to one another it's speaking of genuine love and you see the phrase that comes after it honor one another above yourselves I'm sure if we all looked in the mirror and said, have I done that today? It would challenge us. I know I'm not good at that often. But why are we to be devoted to one another in brotherly love in this church? Why are we to honour one another? Well, look at verse 5, because it gives us the answer. We are one body and we belong to each other. You know when Paul uses in the New Testament the phrase um, brothers and sisters, he's describing... uh, people within a church who are united together in a a, a family you're united in blood you're the relatives in a church you're united in the gospel and when Paul uses the phrase brother and sister it's not a kind of first century kind of phrase that doesn't really mean much oh brother and sister there's actually something very powerful going on in those words he is saying that the devotion you might naturally have to your earthly family the people you're closest to it should be the same devotion to your Christian family brothers and sisters that's hard isn't it if you've got a close family you'll know how easy it is to love your family, your parents, your brothers, sisters much much harder to love each other but when Paul uses that term brother and sister there's a very deliberate sense when you look around this room there's something so powerful that unites us completely different random bunch of people but it's God's love that brings us together And this challenge here, be devoted to one another in love, is saying, do you have the same devotion and honouring of each other that you would have to your own family? That's really hard to hear, because we're not good at that. And often we might think, well, there's a person in my church over there, but I'm not really devoted to them. In fact, I've never even spoken to them. 
what does this look like in practice? Here's the question we're going to throw at that challenge, because it's not easy to hear. Here's just a few examples. You might wonder, why is verse 12 where it is? It's slightly odd, isn't it, to turn tack from devotion and brotherly love to suddenly talking about suffering. There's three little phrases here. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Let me help us to understand what each of those phrases means. Being joyful in hope literally means to be joyful because of your hope. There is a way that a Christian, a person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus, can still have a joy, a sense of permanency and peace, no matter what the circumstances they go through. And it's because of the hope that we have. We have a hope that one day there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things will have passed away. That's not a hope that a person who doesn't know Jesus can have. It's a massive hope. It's why one of the things that makes the gospel so glorious, be joyful in hope. It says there, be patient in affliction. That's not kind of saying, be passive and put up with affliction. I've got to bear with this because I'm a Christian, it's what I'm going to do. It's more a sense of a kind of resolute endurance. I will keep trusting, even though I cannot see the way forward, even though it really hurts. Because I know the one who is my saviour and he is looking after me. And then the last phrase, faithful in prayer, it's talking about a kind of persistence and consistency in prayer. I'm going to keep trusting in God. He is the one who's at work. And you're probably wondering, why has that got anything to do with brotherly love? Do you know that some of you at the moment who are really struggling with particularly bereavement, you have been the most amazing example to us as a church family, and you probably don't even realise it. Some of you who have just come to a prayer meeting when you're hurting, that is an amazing example of brotherly love. Because you don't want to be there, you don't want to pray because you're hurting, but you come to be a blessing to others. And there are many people in this church who have been hurting this last year, and you won't realise it, but you have been an amazing example of being devoted to one another in brotherly love and honouring others above yourself because your problems, as huge as they have been, have not totally consumed you. And at moments you've been able to give to other people. That is why affliction can be actually a grace that God gives because through it, he can be a huge blessing to other people. I want to encourage those of you who are hurting at the moment that you have been a blessing to many of us in the example that you have shown through the hardships that you've been through. Do you know in AD 64, there was a massive persecution for the early Christians in Rome. A bloke called Nero was the emperor and he was a really nasty piece of work. Uh, the Apostle Peter was crucified under Nero's reign, and the Apostle Paul was beheaded under Rome, um, Nero's reign. In AD 64, two-thirds of Rome was burnt to the ground, and there were all these conspiracy theories going around who did it, and some people thought it was the emperor himself, burnt down Rome so he could rebuild it his way and build a legacy for his name. But what does, what does Nero do, the emperor, when he is blamed for the great fire in the city of Rome? Who does he blame? The Christians. Easy target. He blames the Christians. And it's absolutely astonishing. I've been reading a book this week about what uh, early historians wrote about what Christians went through in the first century. They would throw Christians to the lions as sport. And people would watch Christians being ripped alive. Uh, one of the sort of catchphrases that went round in the first century is if there was ever a riot in Rome or another city, then people would shout out together, Christians to the lions. It was just what people did. It was such an easy target to blame the Christians. Uh, it's also been recorded that Nero would cover Christians in tar, fix them across a pole, and set light to them to light up his garden for the parties he'd have. 
Christians were the source of great persecution. And yet, you read the historians who wrote about the influence that these Christians had in the difficult times. And they write about the Christians being the people, despite the persecution they went through, who opened up their homes, who patiently endured, who loved, even though they had no real reason to love. Displaying what Paul talks about here, joy in hope, patience in affliction, faithfulness in prayer, is one of the most profound ways that we can be devoted to one another. Here's another example though, look at verse 13. Hospitality. I guess we often think of hospitality simply being um, giving a meal to someone and it it always involves that, it often involves that, but it's so much deeper. In the first century, if you were a travelling Christian, you were completely dependent on the homes of other Christians who'd open up their homes. You'd come into a place on your travels, you'd probably meet the other Christians in a church gathering, you'd have nowhere to stay. And, And true hospitality was about the Christians opening up their hearts to complete strangers and loving them and serving them. It probably started with a meal, That's the kind of base minimum, but it was always more than that. It was providing for people's physical needs. It was lavish generosity. It was often very spontaneous. There's a need, I'll respond. It wasn't necessarily a planned meal where someone is planned to come round to my home for a meal. But it's an amazing way that we can love one another. Notice as well verse 15. Hospitality is more than just giving a meal. It's the genuine love that we can show one another, and particularly love we can show to strangers says verse 15, and Neil mentioned this earlier, and the song we sung was about this really, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. Sometimes hospitality is just putting an arm around someone who's struggling. When you don't need to, and when you could just say, somebody else in the church will do it. It's that kind of deep, deep sense of love and wanting to give of ourselves. And I guess the challenge to us is often we think of our homes as kind of our private little castles. But actually, God has blessed us with everything he's blessed us with so we can be a blessing to others. One of the best things we can do to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honour others above ourselves is open up our homes to each other, but particularly to strangers and those who we wouldn't naturally want to have in our homes. It's a great way of displaying the love of Christ. Here's a particular challenge for the elders in the church. When you read in the book of Timothy or indeed in Titus, about the qualifications for eldership. Hospitality is one of them. So a challenge to each of you who is an elder, and to myself, we must be hospitable people. Because that's an amazing example then to the wider church. But it's also an instruction to all believers, as Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's a very powerful way that we can show devotion and brotherly love to each other. And the last little example, it's not really in the passage uh, directly, but it's inferred, is when we talk about church membership, we've all probably got slightly different understandings of what that means. I guess for a lot of people it, it means simply the right to vote when we make decisions in a church. But biblically, membership is speaking much more about a deep, deep commitment to other people and for other people to express a deep, deep commitment to you. That is what membership is all about. And it's about saying, I'm prepared to stand up and be accountable for the profession of faith that I've made. If you've never really thought about that deeply, I'd love you to come and chat with Neil and myself, because really, we really believe together with the elders, we're really committed to what membership means, that it's a brilliant way to help us to be properly devoted to one another in love. We'd love to chat with you if you'd like to talk about that. Well, there's the first challenge, um, being other centred What will it look like? 
it will basically look like giving our lives away to serve other people. And that's hard. But here's the second one. The second challenge that comes in our passage is the challenge to have a spiritual vibrancy. And I want to mark out a kind of continuum here. But here's number one. And as we come along, here's kind of number ten. This is my spiritual vibrancy line, okay? I want you in your heads and heart to place yourself on this line somewhere. How spiritually alive do you feel? How's your relationship with God going? One would be very, very cold. There'll be some here, of course, as well, who haven't yet trusted Jesus. You'd probably say, I'm one if that. But we'll all be somewhere along this continuum, okay? I want to encourage you, where you are right now on that line is not that important. What's important is where you want to be on that line. And you might say, well, that's a bit of a silly question, because of course we all want to be at 10, but not necessarily, because there are plenty of Christians who want to sort of have their Christian life in their little Sunday bubble, but Monday to Saturday don't really give God a second thought. So we mustn't automatically assume we all want to have a really deep, thriving, vibrant Christian faith, because not everyone actually does, because sometimes it can cost us. But look at verse 11. Because it talks about the challenge is don't be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour. That word zeal there is really speaking of a kind of energy and diligence in using the gifts that God has given us to serve him and serve other people. It's kind of the opposite of it would be a spiritual laziness or maybe a timidity. Paul says to the younger man, Timothy, doesn't he, in the book of 2 Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity. He's trying to encourage Timothy to use the gifts he's got. And perhaps he's trying to encourage you to use the gifts that you've got. Do you notice back in verse 8 where Paul gave the command, if you have a gift of leadership, lead with diligence. That word diligence is the same word as zeal in verse 11. It's lead with zeal, lead with an energy and lead without timidity. There are lots of leaders throughout this church at all different levels of responsibility and in in the way that you serve. And the challenge to you if you're a leader is lead with an energy and don't be timid. But then notice as well the second phrase, but keep your spiritual fervour. That's a, a difficult translation, but, because actually it could be and, and it reads better to be and, because it's not one or the other. They, they work together, have a zeal for God, and have a spiritual fervour. And the picture we're given of having this spiritual fervour is a pot of boiling water. It's this idea of being set on fire by God's spirit. It's not talking about a pot of water that's boiling over, sort of out of control, having such a zeal and passion for the Lord that it negates godliness and a love for other people. But God's heart is that each of us in our hearts, our hearts are like a bubbling bowl of water. Think about um, if you've got a friend who's not a Christian, you're perhaps saying to him, why don't you come to church? Or I'd love you to come to the Explore course and hear about the Christian faith. It really matters a lot to me. Imagine if you have no spiritual fervour. When they look at your pot on the stove, there's no flame underneath at all. So it's just a bowl, and in it there's water, and the water's not doing anything. What are they going to say when you say to them, come to an event, I'd love you to hear about Jesus, I'd love you to become a Christian. They're going to look at the bowl and go, it's not doing anything. What difference does your faith make in your life? I can't see it. But when you see a bubbling bowl of water, what it, you see steam, you see the bubbles, you see the water moving. That is like God's Spirit breathing through you and giving you an energy to serve him. 
giving you a joy in serving him and that is what this passage is talking about you may be one on this continuum you may be at ten where you are doesn't matter but where you want to be does and if you want to move from being somewhere more down this end to somewhere up more this end the key to it is this complete dependence and complete surrender it could even be this when was the last time you knelt before God in that kind of pose complete surrender God, your Lord, and I want to give you everything that I am. Because when each of us do that, that is when we're best helped to move from one to ten. When we say, God, it's all about you and what you can do in my life. Do you know there'll be some for whom you'll have been a Christian a long, long time? Can I just challenge you? Sometimes you may look at younger Christians and, co- and sort of say, that's just youthfulness or youthful naivety. Now, sometimes it is. But it's not always. And sometimes it's the newer Christians who've more recently come to faith who have a deeper zeal and spiritual fervour. And it's very easy to have been a Christian a long time and just gone off the boil completely. If that's you, I just challenge you to come back to God and reconnect with that first passion you once had. But the flip side, and this is what I'm really encouraged by, I love the fact that in this church there are lots and lots of older people who have a zeal for the Lord, who have a spiritual fervour who are bubbling away and setting an amazing example for those of us who are younger. And if that's you, then thank you for the encouragement that you are, because that's hugely important. Here's a question I want to throw at this, because it's all very well talking about spiritual vibrancy. I bet many of us often say this. What happens, though, when I feel spiritually dry? Just three things very briefly. Here's the first one. Perhaps this will surprise you. It's normal Christian experience to sometimes feel spiritually dry. Do you know that pastors can feel spiritually dry? It's possible. It can actually happen very regularly because you're giving out spiritually so much. Every single Christian at some point will feel spiritually dry. So if you feel spiritually dry now, don't despair. In fact, don't worry about it. Because sometimes when you're feeling spiritually dry and then you spend endless time worrying that you're dry, it just makes it worse. Second thing to remember, when you're feeling spiritually flat, often it's the case when you're hurting or when you feel far from God, God gets that. He kind of gets you and he doesn't look at you and go, well, you're a one and that's hopeless because I can only use tens. So just out the way, let me use the super guys up here. He, He looks at you and he just puts an arm around you and says, I get you. I know what it's like to be spiritually flat. I can see. And I know the reasons why you're spiritually flat, but I'm with you. Stick with me and I'll gradually help you. And gradually, bit by bit, as my spirit works in your life, I may help you to move further up this end. Third thing, if you would say you're spiritually dry, but perhaps you say, but to be honest, if I'm really honest with myself, I'm always spiritually dry, almost always. I've never really had a spiritual vibrancy or zeal for the Lord. If I look at that pot of boiling water, that's never really been me. Perhaps the biggest thing that you could do would be this total surrender. What is it in your life that you're holding back from God? What is it that you haven't given him? Who is it that you love more than you love him? Because when you're not wholehearted for God, of course you're going to lose your joy. You're going to lose your zeal, your spiritual fervour. But being wholehearted for him, that total surrender, is the single most important thing to help you to move from being somewhere down this end 
to somewhere further up this end. Be other centered, we've looked at what it looks like in practice, pretty tough, but essentially it's giving our lives away. We've looked at the challenge to be spiritually vibrant. We all feel spiritually dry at times. Don't despair. God gets you. Look at him. But the last one is this, serving wholeheartedly. Do you see verse 11? It's when we are fully devoted to one another in brotherly love, when we honour others above ourselves, when we're not lacking in zeal, when we've kept our spiritual fervour, those things then help us to best, verse 11, serve the Lord. Indeed, it's who we're serving that actually qualifies the use of our zeal and the way that our spiritual fervour is played out. It's not a kind of, as I said earlier, it's not an uncontrolled passion that bypasses godliness. I'll give you a couple of examples. Perhaps for you, you have that very rare gift, and there's not many like this, who when a person at a shop gives you a receipt, you give them a gospel. You've just got the amazing ability to share your faith very easily. There's few like that. If that's you and you have a real zeal for evangelism, that's a wonderful thing, and you want to encourage everyone to have that same zeal. But having a spiritual fervour in that zeal doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't do that is a failure, and you need to keep banging on, be like that. Because actually, part of having a spiritual fervour and zeal is to understand we're all different and to appreciate we're all wired differently. Another example, perhaps God has been at work in your life in helping you with a particular sin that he's laid really heavily on your heart to help you on your spiritual journey. And he's given you such a deep conviction that it's wrong that you want to live like that for the rest of your life. It may well be that the person next to you, God hasn't yet done his work on that area in that person's life. Of course we need a zeal and a spiritual vibrancy. We want to encourage that person. But God has us all on different journeys and he teaches us in different ways at different times. And it's not just a person's right then to go up to a person and be very heavy-handed. Well, I've learned this great lesson. God show me how serious this sin is. Why is it still in your life? You shouldn't be like this. You're a Christian. You see, having a, a zeal for the Lord isn't just outward passion and energy. It's also directed and governed with godliness, with patience with an understanding that we're all different. It's important for us to grasp that. I had a friend this week who came to see me, uh, just struggling with different things, and uh, as part of trying to help him, I tried to encourage him not to focus on the specific struggle, because the more you focus on the individual struggle, the worse you feel and the worse it gets. Instead I said, I encourage you just to grow your relationship with God, because the bigger he becomes to you, the smaller your struggle may become because you recognise there's a far greater power than your own abilities to overcome the problem. And I hope and pray for this guy that as he focuses more on God, the problem that he was really honest in sharing will become less of a problem. I was going to ask you, uh, anyone know who this chap is? But it could basically be anyone, couldn't it? Um, This funny chap with a funny hat on is a man called Nicholas Herman. He lived in the 17th century. He's French. He became a Christian. If you don't know Nicholas Herman, you might have heard of Brother Lawrence, same person. He went on this journey of discovery where he came to have a personal relationship with God. And he wrote about it in this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. I read this this week, it's quite helpful and interesting. This is really his experience of giving his life completely over to God. Well, he entered a monastery and he thought that the best way he could give his life over to God was to endure hardship and remove for his life all pleasure as his way of saying, God, I'm fully devoted to you and I want to give you all that I am. But I read in this book this week and it really 
struck my heart. He said this, I decided to sacrifice my life with all its pleasures to God. But he greatly disappointed me in this area. For I have met with nothing but satisfaction in giving my life wholly over to him. That was his experience. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Perhaps you look at that challenge to serve wholeheartedly and go, yeah, but how could I serve the Lord in what I do? Well, we see at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, don't we? At the beginning of the reading, verse 1, that true worship is giving all of our life to God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. In view of God's mercy. In other words, because of all that he has given you, offer your bodies, offer all that you are to him as a living sacrifice. And friends, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, we serve him because he has first served us. To close, I'd like you to look at this. These are the words of our memory verse. I put Jesus at the beginning of every phrase. What I'd like you to do is just read this quietly in your heart. And if you feel able, put your name in that blank to allow you to reflect on all that Christ has done for you. There was a British pastor in the 19th century, he was a pastor and evangelist, a guy called Henry Varley. He met an American younger pastor and evangelist called D.L. Moody. You may have heard this story. Varley said to him, The world has yet to see what God can do with a person wholly given over to him. And do you know how D.L. Moody responded? By God's help, I hope to be that person. So my prayer for us as a church this year, particularly as we reflect on this memory verse, is that we would give ourselves fully to serving the Lord because that is the way that we'll be best devoted to loving one another. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, why don't you take a moment of quiet to reflect on those three challenges, those three questions. And while we do that, can I ask the music team just to come up, because they'll be playing later, and those who are going to be serving communion just to come to the front, that would be great.